0: Why are coastal cities sinking? And will the European Investment Bank fund new gas projects? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Bekkah Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Thursday, September 22nd. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Nigeria is battling its worst floods in a decade. These events have affected half a million people, displaced 100,000, and killed at least 20 this week, according to the country's National Emergency Management Center. It has destroyed thousands of hectares of farmland in Africa's most populated country, which is bound to make the continent's food crisis even worse. Nigeria sees flooding every year, mainly as a byproduct of ignoring environmental recommendations and poor infrastructure. But unusually heavy rainfall, water overflowing from local rivers, and an excess release of water from the Legdu Dam in neighboring Cameroon have resulted in more than 300 Nigerians dying from floods this year, the most deaths due to this kind of event in a decade. The unusually heavy rainfall part is likely linked to climate change. Meanwhile, there's major flooding in New South Wales and northern Victoria as intense rainfall places an exclamation point on us entering a triple La Nina. To review, the La Nina is the colder part of the La Nina-El Nino southern oscillation and usually only lasts less than a year but we've been in a less common double La Nina since September 2020. And a week ago, we got formal confirmation from the main global meteorological organizations that we have officially entered a rare triple La Nina, which means these conditions that have caused flooding in places like Australia, while heating up and droughting places like Europe, will continue until at least mid-November, if not until February. Climate change is causing La Nina and El Nino swings to be more extreme, by the way. So that's basically where we get all this rain from. Today could end up being the wettest day for New South Wales. Many water bodies have already overflowed, stranding farmers and risking croplands. Flash flooding is a major risk. And continuing the flood news, I forgot to mention this event earlier, but Central Italy experienced an intense rainstorm last Thursday that dumped over a foot of rain in the span of two hours, resulting in flash flooding and killing at least nine people. Like many parts of Europe, Italy has experienced all kinds of weird weather events, from severe drought and heat waves to torrential downpours and flooding. This has devastated the country's agriculture sector and disrupted supply chains. The country's prime minister attributed this latest extreme weather event to climate change as he declared a state of emergency. And as Puerto Rico is still in the dark and starting to assess the damage, Fiona has already recharged into a Category 4 hurricane as its eye narrowly missed the Turks and Caicos Islands. The area still saw strong winds, heavy rains, and high waves. Tropical storm Gaston has already formed in the Atlantic too, but it will likely not reach any land. Now for some climate studies. Sea level rise is definitely impacting populous coastal cities, but that's not the only thing causing the sea to infiltrate the barriers at an exponential rate. New research led by Nanyang Technological University, Singapore, the University of New Mexico, ETH Zurich, and NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab has determined that 44 out of 48 of the largest coastal cities in the world are causing themselves to sink at a growing rate due to heavy buildings compacting the soil and groundwater extraction. Cities in Asia, specifically Southeast Asia, are seeing the worst land subsistence. In the cities the teams looked at, they found a median sinking speed of 16.2 millimeters a year, though some cities it's as high as 43 millimeters a year. In comparison, the current global mean sea level rise is 3.7 millimeters a year. Bottom line, cities need to rethink their relationship with their water supply and soil in addition to building resilience to the rising seas. Over in the agriculture sector now, a new report by the UN-affiliated Brace to Zero determines that the top 40 farming and food firms could lose an average 7% of their value by 2030, which is equivalent to about $150 billion in investor losses, if they do not adapt to government policies and consumer behavior tied to climate change. This is based on data by Vivid Enterprise, which is part of the consulting firm McKinsey & Co., In some cases, companies could lose up to a quarter of their value by 2030. Unfortunately, the report doesn't specifically say which company will be hit the hardest because the writers didn't want to formally state this information as advice. The report does say, though, that switching to a more plant-based model and more sustainable agriculture methods would provide great opportunities for these same companies. Time for some climate victories. China made a third of its land off-limits to development under a scheme known as the Ecological Protection Red Line, according to a senior official on Monday. This puts the country in line with the land side of an agreement several countries made during the last large UN climate conference, COP26, last November. That promise was to protect 30% of their lands and waters by 2030. Ironically, China never formally agreed to it, but this red line idea has been discussed in China since 2011. Critics of this scheme say China will just redraw the lines if it wants to develop somewhere, and the latest guidelines of policy state that cultivation, logging in commercial forests, and mining exploration can still continue in those protected spaces. So I'm not sure how much this scheme will truly do. Meanwhile, the country's marine ecosystems remain mostly unprotected and in poor health. Well, that victory story went downhill quickly. Let's try another one. 44 out of the 74 members of the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance have committed to 2025 targets that support Paris Accord goals, up from 29 last year. These 44 represent $7.1 trillion, or £6.3 trillion, of the £10.6 the Alliance manages, with members such as Aviva PLC, Swiss Re, and the California Public Employment Retirement Fund. This UN-backed group of pension funds and insurance companies was formed in 2019. As a member of the group, the fund or company is required to make five targets within 12 months of joining. For a 2025 target, they must commit to reducing their own and their portfolio's emissions by 22 to 32 percent by then to reach 49 to 65 percent by 2030. The eventual goal is to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Additionally, members' investments in climate solutions increased by threefold to $253 billion or £225 billion this year compared to last year. Continuing with the theme of finances, the European Investment Bank said it would not invest in any new gas projects, despite intense pressure from many developing countries in Africa and elsewhere wanting the bank to reclassify gas as a transition fuel. The bank has held strong and said that it would not invest in an asset that would later become stranded. While this is a good move as the International Energy Agency and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have both stated that we can't afford to start any new fossil fuel projects, African leaders are bound to call this incredibly hypocritical and against a just transition. They have a reason to, since the European Union recently reclassified gas as a transition fuel for its own purposes. Greenpeace and other environmental groups are currently suing them over that rebranding. The bank's chief recognizes this double standard and blamed wealthy countries for using the war in Ukraine as an excuse to continue with fossil fuels. However, because many emerging economies don't have too many fossil fuel reserves to their own name, investing in gas infrastructure would lock them into eventually relying on countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia, just like Europe is. The EIB chief also said he was disappointed to see so few European leaders show up to talks with African leaders recently on climate change adaptation matters. Speaking of that meeting, though, one European country that did show up was Denmark, and now Denmark has become the first country to commit to providing loss and damage financial support to emerging economies. It announced $13 million, or £11.6 million, towards this effort during the UN General Assembly taking place in New York this week. While this is much less than the money promised for helping developing nations with their clean energy transition, it marks a recognition of this other financial need the need for money to recover from worsening extreme weather events, which poorer countries hold very little responsibility for. Climate finance will be a main topic at COP27 in less than two months. Hopefully, Denmark's move will encourage other wealthy nations to warm up to the concept. Meanwhile, Norway's $1.2 trillion investment fund announced that all companies that it serves must reach net zero by 2050 or they'll lose business. It has stake in over 9,000 companies. The fund also intends to increase funding for renewable companies and projects. And let's end today's episode with our one climate fail. A new analysis by the Australian Conservation Fund has determined that emissions from Australian domestic oil and gas extraction rose by 20% over the last five years since 2016, which was when a safeguard mechanism was put in place to reduce these emissions. Clearly, it's not working. That's because while this mechanism was supposed to penalize companies that breached the set emissions limits, companies mostly have been let off the hook. The 215 facilities covered by these mechanisms are responsible for about 28% of the country's emissions. Ten of these companies are responsible for more than half of this emissions increase, with the worst offenders being the gas companies Chevron and Woodside and the mining giant Rio Tinto. The single biggest polluting site is Chevron's Gorgon Liquefied Natural Gas, or LNG, development in northern Western Australia. It was given the go-ahead with the promise of an attached carbon capture and storage facility, which was supposed to be the largest in the world. The project to build this facility was constantly delayed, and since its completion, the facility has missed the emissions uptake projections set by the Western Australian government. Most of the emissions increase during the last five years has been due to an expansion of LNG exports. This analysis shows the need for the Albanese government to revamp this mechanism effectively and quickly in order to meet its emissions reductions goals of 43% compared to 2005 levels by 2030. The government has shown interest in doing so, but the researchers say that their current plan for how to reform this mechanism would not be sufficient. And that was your climate recap for Thursday, September 22nd. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becca's Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.